And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And that's a conversation we often have our listeners join in on. Uh, you can write to us at FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com. If you'd like to be a guest, and we have found guests for the show, or if you're a traveler who has a question that you want answered, we would love to speak with you. Let me also start the show out by reminding everyone that we're not just on radio. You can find us on the web at fromers.com. That's our website. We work very hard on it every week. Uh, we have a terrific newsletter that's free to sign up for. Uh, we also have social media feeds that are a heck of a lot of fun to follow. You can find them at Instagram, on Pinterest, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Just look for the word Fromers. And, of course, we are the guidebook people, so you will find our books wherever books are sold. Now, for regular listeners to the show, you know we've changed it up a little bit here, thanks to the pandemic. And we are concentrating on excellent travelers. We are talking to excellent travelers, excellent travel writers, excellent travel journalists, and we're, we're talking to them about the world in general, how they got where they are. And our guest today is excellence personified. She is Onika Raymond. She's an award-winning travel expert, writer, television host, whose adventures have taken her to 18, 118 countries on six continents. She's also a host of Travel Channel's Big City Little Budget and a lifestyle correspondent for NBC New York. You can get in touch with her on her website at onikaraymond.com. Hey, Onika, thank you so much much for joining us on the travel show. Oh, Pauline, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So I'm, I wanted to find out, how did you get your start in travel? Wow. So <laughs> here's the thing. I was, <laughs> where do I begin? Um, I always say that travel has been in my veins and also in my surroundings. So I was born in Toronto, Canada, and um, I am the child of Jamaican immigrants. So my parents hail from the island nation of Jamaica. Mm. And Toronto, for those of you who don't know, is a very multicultural city. It's one of the most multicultural cities in the entire world. So growing up there, I had access to so many people from so many different cultures and creeds and religions and languages that I felt as though I was traveling without even leaving my city. And so, um, obviously, as the child of immigrants, I had the chance to travel back to the Caribbean to visit family members as well as to the U.S. And I've always just had a passion for travel. But it wasn't until I got to university and I did a study abroad in um, in my third year of university, I went to France for a year. That was when my eyes really opened up to the world around me. And so I caught the travel bug or got bit by the travel bug and uh, ended up working in international education for 10 years. Oh, wow. I was a French 
speaker overseas, living in Hong Kong and also living and teaching in London, England and in France and in Mexico. And um, throughout that time, I kept up a travel blog. Now, this was long before Facebook was a thing. Hmm. Uh, Instagram didn't exist. And so I just had a little blog spot blog. Um, those of you who <laughs> are probably not millennials will remember back in the day when we had <laughs> blog spot and dial up internet. And uh, I just chronicled my travel adventures. And uh, I did it for the love of writing and the love of connection. And that's how I got my start travel writing. Right. And then, of course, it grew and ballooned into what it is today. But uh, it was just really a passion project of mine and a way to keep in touch with friends and family members and also connect with other like-minded travelers. Now, would it be fair to say that uh, your travel blog, well, I don't know, fair to say is not the right word. Your travel blog was from your own point of view, which is as a person of color. Did that help it? Absolutely. How did that shape what you saw and did overseas? I mean, especially, it's interesting to me that you started in France because there are, there have been some racist instances in France over the over the decades. It's it's Mm -hmm. it can be an intolerant place. Sure, sure, definitely. Um, So essentially, I started my travel blog as I said before as a means to. Uh, keep in touch with friends and family members because social media was not a thing. Social media did not exist at that time. The very first time I traveled overseas and, and lived abroad, that was in 2003. So I don't think Facebook started until maybe, let's say, 2005. Hmm. Uh, there was no social media. And so, you know, when I began my blog, it was really just a journal. It was a diary. It was an online repository for my writing and for my photos. But it wasn't until about 2009 that I realized that I had an audience other than friends and family members. And it wasn't until that time that I started realizing that the content I was creating was serving as a guide for other women of color, particularly black women who wanted to travel but were reluctant to because they were afraid of racial persecution abroad. Hmm. And so in 2009, I was already living and working in Hong Kong, and that was a real anomaly at the time. I mean, I remember living and traveling to China and having people reach out and touch my skin and pull my hair without my permission. I had people taking my photos. I was a huge anomaly, and for black people back home in Canada and the U.S., they were like, what the heck are you doing? They, they couldn't believe it. Huh. And so when I was writing um, at that time, I started writing with those people in mind. So I would write about what it meant to be black and living in Asia. Uh, one of the articles that I wrote uh, went viral, or at least viral in what was considered viral sure. in 2010, 2011. Right. And the title was, should I be mad that they take my picture because I am black? Hmm. Because I had had so many encounters at that point of people surreptitiously taking my picture without my permission wow. or reaching out to touch me or calling out to me in the street because here I was, this, this black woman, dark-skinned black woman with dreadlocks. And I was something they had never seen before in real life. And so I, you know, kind of posed the question as to whether or not I should be upset, um, whether or not I should treat this as uh, curiosity or as some sort of um, negative thing. Um, And 
you know, I think that's really where my audience began to grow. And that's where my awareness of what I was doing and what I represented in the world of travel really began began to form and grow. Well, what conclusion did you come to? Should you be upset or was this simply curiosity or did your differentness form a barrier between you and the people who you wanted to connect with through travel? So what I've realized, and that's an excellent question, what I've realized is that the answer to that question is highly personal. Now, I'm someone I thrive on attention, clearly as somebody who is an on-air host yes. and uh, an internet and television personality. I love attention. I love having eyes on me. But it's a very personal thing. So while I love that attention and while I find that uh, being black and traveling while black actually often breaks down barriers between cultures and languages and creeds because people want to come and talk to me and engage with me. Um, For some other people, that may be really uncomfortable. And I don't believe that because you look a certain way, whether it's related to your race or your, your level of, you know, whether you're differently abled or what have you, you know, when you present yourself as different in the world, when you're different from the mainstream, I don't believe that you are de facto ambassador for Hmm. that particular group. Right. So while when I travel to South Korea and people are asking me about my hair, I'm usually really, really keen or really open to talking to them about it and educating them about it. Um, I am by no means obligated, nor should any other black person be obligated to teach and to to educate and to engage. So I think that it's highly personal, but for me personally, I have really enjoyed the doors that it's opened and how many people I've been able to engage with around the world because I look different. It's it's a conversation starter. So you think it's opened more doors than closed them? Oh, for sure. And one of the the, uh, stories that I think of really often is, or one of the uh, experiences that I've had, um, it was when I traveled to Mongolia. I traveled to Mongolia on my own, and uh, I stayed with two nomadic families. And I slept in a yurt. Well, wow. they call it a, a gur hmm. in, uh, in Mongolia. And it was interesting because it was one of the first times, even though I've traveled really extensively around the world, it was one of the first times that I could not communicate at all with my host. They wow. did not speak English. I did not speak Mongolian. And so we couldn't communicate. But yet, through using hand gestures, and smiling and using body language, we were really able to um, kind of engage with one another. You know what, Onika, I'm sorry, I have to cut for a commercial break and we're right in the middle, but we will be right back. For anybody tuning in late, we've been speaking with Onika Raymond. She is the host of Travel Channel's Big City, Little Budget and the Lifestyle Correspondent for NBC New York. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Onika Raymond. When we left, she was in a gur, also known as a yurt in Mongolia, 
making hand gestures with the nomadic family that you were staying with. And that was the way, that was the only way you could communicate with them. It was indeed, yes. And And were... Go ahead. Oh, and I, I, I was going to say, I think the point that I really wanted to make is that when we travel, we travel because we want to know and see and understand the other. Mm-hmm. So me being a black female traveler, you know, I'm, I'm othered, but at the same time, I'm going because I want to learn more about what I consider the other. So they were interested in me. You know, the nomadic family was interested in me. I was really interested in them. We couldn't communicate but for these hand gestures and body language and smiling and all of that. But yeah, we were able to form a connection because we were both really curious about one another. And for me, that was such uh, an incredible time um, and an incredible experience. And it's it's one that I'll I'll never forget because they were so vastly different from me. And they were probably thinking, wow, this girl is just completely different as well. And we shared that sentiment. Hmm. You know, yes, there's always this difference when we travel. This is making me think back of years ago, I took my then seven-year-old daughter to China and she was enamored in those days of wearing this little cowboy hat and boots (laughs) and she has blonde hair. And so she looked like, you know, the all-American little girl or or probably what Chinese thought of that. And that Mm -hmm. was a very positive thing. But, you know, people around the world may watch American-made media, video, you know, action movies, uh, things where often black Americans are portrayed in a negative light. Did yes. you ever feel people were scared of you or worried about what you might do because of the color of your skin? Now, I think I have to say that as a black woman who is fairly petite, uh, I'm very smiley. I think that I have a certain amount of privilege mm. because I don't seem as threatening perhaps right. as, a, as a black man. And so I think that's something that is, is really important to note. Um, black people are not a monolith. People of sure. color are not a monolith. We're all going to have different experiences, although we're united uh, in our race. With that being said, even though I'm not perceived as much of a threat in many places that I travel to as a, as a black female traveler, I have definitely experienced racial discrimination uh, throughout my travels. Um, I would say that 99% of my travels have been positive. They have been good. I've had a wonderful time. I've been treated exceptionally well. But there's always that 1%, hmm. um, whether it's going through... Uh, airport immigration in Hong Kong or um, Kuala Lumpur and being pulled aside Hmm. when all the other Asian and Caucasian travelers are not stopped, but yet I'm pulled aside for additional screening. Um, That has happened to me a number of times. Or alternatively, I had one racial incident where I traveled to Dublin in Ireland and I was harassed Hmm. by three young Irish men walking down the street who decided that they were going to um, shout things at me in a bonnet and and talk about my backside. You know, they they were making um, salacious comments about my body and speaking to me in African-American vernacular English, Hmm. so basically taunting me. Right. Um, You know, these are unpleasant experiences. However, the, and they most 
definitely need to be highlighted. I think that um, forewarned is forearmed. Sure. I think it's, it's perfect. You know, as a traveler, we always need to have um, adequate information or more than adequate information in order to make our own um, decisions with regards to where we're going to go and what we're going to do. Um, so we most definitely should talk about them. But at the same time, um, I have to say that I haven't let that stop me from traveling. Right. And I don't think that black travelers should not travel for fear of racial persecution. Because I will be quite honest with you, of all of the countries I've traveled to, I've traveled to 118 countries on six continents. The most racist country that I have been to is the one that I currently live in, which is the United States of America. And I would fear for my life here in a way that I would not fear for my life in Russia or China or or elsewhere. And Hmm. I think that that really needs to be said and it needs to be said loud and clear because the U.S. in its current state is a dangerous place for black people. Right. Absolutely. We are speaking with Onika Raymond. She is the host of the Travel Channel's Big City Little Budget. She's also a lifestyle correspondent for NBC New York. So this idea of blacks traveling kind of came to the came to light in an interesting historic way was it last year when the, it was the green book or am i getting the name the name of that movie wrong the, yeah the yeah green, the green book so maybe that was um i want to say probably two years ago that was, two years ago know? and it was very interesting because it showed a white audience how black uh travelers back back in the day had to have a book had to have guidance on how to do it safely. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're, you've been an incredible uh, uh, model for other black travelers on how, why you should get out there. And I think it's, it's heartbreaking, but true, that it's probably safer abroad than it is in the United mm-hmm. States right now. Uh, but what, for people who want to travel within the United States, and I'll say that we are taping this in June, right now, uh, the European Union has just said they're not going to be allowing Americans in for quite some time. So we may be stuck in the United States. <laughs> What's your advice for going into new communities and traveling safely here in the U.S.? I always say that it is important to connect with people who are on the ground. So it's important to in, to inform yourself and to arm yourself with information about what is happening, where you are going, and if possible, connect with people who live there. Or who have been, or who have been there recently, mm-hmm. and that's where social media comes in, and that's where I'm really happy that we live in in the times that we do, sure. where social media is prevalent, where internet is omnipresent, where you can find and, and have so much information at your fingertips, yeah, um, really within a flash. That helps a lot. Um, All right, well, so, Onika, I'm sorry I have to say goodbye, but it's been fascinating speaking with you. For anybody tuning in late, we have been speaking with Onika Raymond. She's host of the Travel Channel's Big City Little Budget. If you want to visit her online, go to onikaraymond.com. Thank you so much, Onika. Thank you for having me, Pauline.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and we have an extended member of the family on the line. She is Diana Schwamm. She is the author, we are very proud to say, of Fromer's Easy Guide to New Orleans. Welcome back to The Travel Show, Diana. Thank you, Pauline, and hi, Arthur, and uh, hi, what a Paula. warm welcome. Diana. Oh, well, thank you. Well, so... As I said earlier in the show, we're doing things a little differently right now because we're, we're talking about travel with the expectation that you'll travel, maybe not immediately, but somewhere in the future. And so to, to help us set the stage for that, we have some of the world's greatest travels, travelers and travel writers with us. And I wanted to find out from you, Diana, how did you end up falling in love with and becoming an expert on New Orleans? Oh, well, that's a great question. And um, I did what happens to, uh, I did what a lot of people do. I started going as a visitor. I went as a tourist. And it struck me the very first time I went, I won't tell you how many years ago, but it's a long time, as a place that just spoke to my heart and my soul in a way that places can but really do, hmm. and I just felt it, and I went again and again and again until I put down roots and uh, bought a house and moved. Wow. And it, it's freakishly common uh, how, how often that happens to people there. People fall in love with it. What do they fall in love with? For, for those who have never been to New Orleans, what is the big appeal, would you say? And I know that's an impossible question because it has many appeals, but in a nutshell, what would you say? That's so true. It's, it's impossible, but you forced my hand by making me write about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, I would say it's just the vibrancy of it. Uh, there is something in the air. There's a joie de vivre that uh, the people there who live there and who visit there just kind of take in and make it their own. So it's kind of brimming with just this this wonderful, joyous feeling. Of course, it's the architecture and it's the food and it's the music. It's the culture. It's so pervasive there. And it really is unique in these United States and I would say around the world. Yeah. Um, the the culture of, of New Orleans. There's so much to explore and see and smell and eat and do and hear. And yeah. it, it just it brims. Well, let's let's talk about some of that culture. I mean, it is it did have a really really unique uh, history. How does it how does its history kind of differ from what you'll find in other major metropolises in the United States? Well, it's a uh, it's, it's very much rooted in, in their French roots, um, but I think a lot of people don't realize that there were other uh, large immigrant populations that uh, populated New Orleans. Of course, um, the African and the Caribbean influx mm-hmm. that began with slavery, but uh, brought its own wonderful culture from from those areas. Also, the Spanish, the Italians. Um, Germans, Irish, all had large immigrant influxes to New Orleans. So it's really this melange of cultures that's created its own sort of feeling uh, in, a, in a unified way. And each one has also kept its own individual um, culture there. So it's got an incredibly rich, deep history. And it's also a living history there. It just continues to thrive, continues to 
show itself in in such interesting ways in the music and the culture and the food and um, the overall experience and the architecture, of course. Right. Um, well, for, for people who have never been, I mean, the architecture, you go there... And there are all of these curlicued metal balconies. There's draping moss on the trees. Uh, there are these grand squares. That's because the city went back and forth, didn't it, between the French and the Spanish, and eventually the Americans purchased it with the Louisiana Purchase? Am I getting the history right? You're right. You're absolutely right, uh, Pauline. It, it uh, was originally a, an outpost of France, uh, trying to develop it as a source of income, as they did in the New World, uh, and was French for many years. And then Spanish rule took over for a short but very influential period of time in the area that we call the French culture, which is just a beautifully preserved area of the old architecture and, and layout, actually uh, has a lot of Spanish influences in the look, so those curly-cued Iron balconies you talk about right. are very much um, from the French, de- from the Spanish design. Um, so yes, it's it's got all that, and you can see it and feel it. And the it. and it was such an important place for the French because of its position on the Mississippi River, right? I mean that that's where the money came into it. That's right. It was a, it was developed for trade. Um, from uh, and the Mississippi River was a trade route. New Orleans, in particular, was developed where it was because there's a little route that bypasses the entrance to the Mississippi River that mm. uh, ships could use, and that area is still there called Bayou St. John. Uh, and that bayou was a, a way that ships could kind of bypass that treacherous end of the Mississippi River and uh, come in and make a trading route. And it was also chosen for its defensive location right. against, uh, against invasion. But it was also a very swampy area, which is why when you go there, one of the top tourist attractions, bizarrely, are the cemeteries where everything is above ground and you learn about the, the fascinating ways that people had to be buried to, to do it in a sanitary way. Uh, to anybody tuning in late, we are speaking with Diana Schwamm. She is the author, we are very proud to say, of both Fromer's Easy Guide to New Orleans 2020 and Fromer's uh, New Orleans Day by Day, which is kind of a, a walking guide to the city with a lot of gorgeous photos, a lot of maps, a lot of fun. We have to take our first, another break, but we will be right back after these messages with more with Diana talking New Orleans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, as we said earlier, we have Diana Schwamm, who is the author of Fromer's Easy Guide to New Orleans. Earlier in the show, we had Onika Raymond on. She's a fabulous traveler, travel writer, host of a show on the Travel Channel and a person of color. And you can't talk about New Orleans without talking about the important uh, mark 
uh, that black Americans have left on that city, right? Absolutely. I'm so glad you you brought that up, and I'm so glad you had Anika on. Oh, she's terrific, um, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, obviously, uh, you you the black experience, the slave experience, uh, is an important part of New Orleans history and helped develop it uh, in the worst possible way, mm. but also has brought with it such a, a beautiful culture as well that still thrives and lives in New Orleans. Um, so we're fortunate for that part of um, of what we have as one of the remainders of that that horrible time. Sure. Um, one of the things that uh, the black culture has brought, well, there, there's so much. I mean, right. it's really such a vibrant place to visit if you want to immerse yourself in that uh, part of our American experience. But New Orleans has something called the Mardi Gras Indians, hmm. which does not exist anywhere else. Um, New Orleans has uh, social aid and pleasure clubs, which do exist anywhere else, but not like they do in New Orleans. Um, New Orleans has jazz, which was before, born before there. we leave the clubs, those are the groups that that parade on Mardi Gras, but they do more than that, right? Yes, the social aid and pleasure clubs were developed, and I'll I'll come back to each of these a little bit. Were developed as benevolent societies, much like the Elks or the Masons, mm. but within communities of um, of blacks, and they were really a protective society as well as a social and sort of a mentorship arrangement uh, when the discrimination laws were such that black people could not be buried, could not mm. uh, get, could not make good incomes. These clubs, you would pay your dues and these clubs would provide for you. If you got ill, they would make sure that you could get medical care. If you could not afford a funeral, they would give one for you. They still exist in that sense to a certain degree. They still do wow. help uh, each other, but now they are very much known for uh, they're parading, they're uh, sort of, uh, they're culture keepers of something that really you don't see very much. Uh, and their parade season goes almost every weekend, round the clock, wow. around the year. <laughs> you can join in. Wow. How great. And, uh, it's great fun. Um, and they're still very much, uh, you know, community builders and mentorship within those clubs. Right. For they're anybody tuning vibrant. in late, we are speaking with Diana Schwamm, a New Orleans expert, the author of Fromer's Easy Guide to New Orleans. So we have the social clubs. We also have jazz, uh, which was born in New Orleans, correct? That's right. Uh, one of the things that was distinct way back when was even in the time of slaveholding, New Orleans had what was called the Code Noir, a French tradition out of the French laws that allowed enslaved people to gather on Sundays in what is now called Congo Square, right outside the French Quarter, hmm. and socialize, trade, make music, uh, do drumming, pray, and uh, from that, many, many years and many, many other influences eventually grew a syncopation that developed into jazz. Wow. Much later on, in the early 1900s, kind of got its start in the red light district, in the houses right. of prostitution, which needed entertainment and <laughs> brought in musicians. Huh. 
and that's where Louis Armstrong began, correct? Louis Armstrong played there, uh, Jelly Roll Morton, uh, all the progenitors of jazz uh, played there until Storyville was raised, and then they went to Chicago, Mm. Memphis, New York, and other places, and it bloomed like menace, especially in Europe. Yeah, it's very interesting. Do you know what's happening with the jazz musicians of New New Orleans? This has been such a tremendously destructive time for people in the arts. Um, How are they surviving? Have you heard anything? Well, uh, not well. Uh, New Orleans is one of the few places where a jazz musician can make a living. Uh, They they play every night in the clubs, and that's their main source of income as a -a work-a-day musician. And without that, they're they're really having a hard time. Of course, they're having online concerts, which we can all listen and contribute to. Uh, there's been some wonderful fundraising and organizations that are there to support them. But, uh, you know, that only goes so far. It's a really difficult situation. And obviously, everyone hopes for a resolution soon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wear your masks. That seems to be yep. the, the best thing That's to do. We have to take another short break. For anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Diana Schwamm. She is the author of Fromer's Easy Guide to New Orleans, as well as Fromer's New Orleans Day by Day. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Diana Schwamm, the author, we are proud to say, of Fromer's Easy Guide to New Orleans and Fromer's New Orleans Day by Day. Both books are available wherever books are sold, and they're beautiful, interesting books. I mean, I think you can hear, listening to Diana talk, how interesting and culturally rich these books are going to be. Even if you're not traveling right away, they're fun to to to, to read. So, Diana, I've been ending every show, every hour by asking our guests a, a kind of a big question: Is travel important? Is it something that that you think people should eventually get back to? What What are your thoughts on this? Wow, that's such a good question. <laughs> Well, um, there's the obvious fun and adventure factor. Um, But don't you feel like you're a little more open when you're traveling? You're opening yourself up to new places and new experiences. Yeah. You're sort of primed your personal pump, as it were, just to be a little (laughs) bit looser and able to let some of your everyday confinements and conformations go. Yeah. And let new and unusual things happen in your life. And who wouldn't want to, you know, embrace and fall in love with new things and and I think that happens you're more open to it when you travel yeah and of course there's the obvious educational factor mm-hmm. um, you know you're learning by doing when you're immersing yourself in a new culture but to me I also think it's it just expands you as a person you become bigger or maybe fuller I guess is the better word your mind expands to take in all the newness you encounter your heart expands to think about the breadth and the wonders of our country and our world and your soul expands your spirits moved yeah by, you know newness and wonder and beauty that you find and we don't always find wonder in our day-to-day lives we have to make room for that and make it purposeful yeah and intentional 
And I think actually New Orleans is a great place to experience that when you travel. I, I always find, fig, what I think about New York, New Orleans, I think of it as a place where people age but don't grow older. Because you can go out to one of the clubs and see people of all ages dancing together and listening to music and talking to one another. And it just seems like a much more integrated society in many ways than other places in the world. Uh, They have their problems. Obviously, it's not fully integrated, and that's a big issue there. But between the generations, there seems to be less of a gap than there are in other places. Have you ever... To quote you in the Frommer's Easy Guide to New Orleans when you say people age but don't grow older. Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, it's so true. Um, I think there's sort of a bohemian side to New Orleans, and uh, it doesn't mean you have to go there and let everything go, but it sort of allows for people to, of all ages, sizes, creeds, colors, orientations, to mix comfortably. And it's yeah. very accepting and it's very open. People are just welcoming and warm and will let you be you. Well, with that um, salute to New Orleans, we have to say goodbye for this hour. Thank you so much, Diana. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And to anybody who is traveling, Dad, do you want to say it? To everyone traveling, a hearty bon voyage.